0: Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. The year 1779 saw the American Revolution take a brutal turn. With the entrance of France and Spain into the conflict, Britain focused its military efforts on protecting interests around the world. With the American Rebellion still in full swing, the fighting descended into a terrible partisan war, pitting neighbor versus neighbor and tribe versus tribe. Sensing new opportunity due to foreign monies, General George Washington launched a campaign to eliminate the Iroquois from the face of the continent, by ravaging their homes and families. While most of the warriors were busy fighting rebels far away, three patriot armies laid waste to all of Iroquois, leaving only smoking ruins in their wake. On this episode, we discuss George Washington's annihilation of the Iroquois, the year 1779. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and events that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, BradyKreitzer.com, And, of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. Here in the third episode of 2015, we're beginning a very challenging chapter, one that I personally take a great satisfaction in as I spend most of my professional career studying this year, the year 1779. Now, for many of us, 1779 may mean as much as 1777, Or 1782. And one of the things, hopefully, you're finding by now is that each year of the revolution is different. A different flavor, a different character, a different texture. In many ways, it almost feels like a different war. 1779 will be no different. Now, playing a little bit of catch up, uh, 1779 for us is not going to really begin until the summertime of 1779. Not because what happens from January to June is not important. But because we only have about 45 minutes this week, uh, and we have to make the decision what to put in and what to leave out. If by this point there are major plot points of the revolution that you're not getting and you're upset about that, I'm sure you're justified in doing so. Uh, but we do have to keep with the narrative we're following, uh, talking about the essential points, and I think, more importantly, how you should think about uh, or confront those essential points. So let's begin. If you'll recall, in the year 1778, we left off in a very familiar place. General William Howe, the commander of British forces in North America, was gone, and he was now replaced by a man who was his, in a way, second-in-command, but always competitor, Sir Henry Clinton. Now, Clinton is very different than Howe. Howe's been orchestrating the American Revolution from the British perspective for the last three years, and the war is still going on. What that means in the minds of British officials is that William Howe has failed. Henry Clinton is different, but he finds himself, as I said, in a very familiar place. He's holding New York City, the island of Manhattan as we know it. Uh, he's holding Long Island. He's holding Staten Island. That's nothing new. And the enemy, George Washington, is just out of his reach, shadowing now Clinton's army from New Jersey and parts north of Manhattan Island. For Clinton, he understands. This war can have a lot of uh, aggression behind it. This war can have a lot of emotion behind it. But, if there is no George Washington, and there is no Continental Army, there is no revolution. It's that simple. Uh, And in the, again, most reductionist ways, he's right. Capture the army, you end the problem. But again, we talked about the fact that what we're seeing here is not... The revolution itself. Remember, the revolution was completed when the Declaration of Independence was signed. What we're seeing here is the defense of the American Revolution. So Clinton is not wrong to take the approach he does, but the odds are that even if he suppressed Washington's army here in 1779, some hostility would pick up sometime later in the future. We probably know that revolutions very rarely die quickly. But that's the standoff we have. It's very similar to what we saw in 1776. We did see major troop movements in 77 to Philadelphia through New Jersey. uh, And in 78, we see them moving back. So it's almost like those two years. uh, I guess you could skip, right? We wish it was that easy. Uh, But you see how fragile, I think, any form of control in North America really can be. Well, it's on this premise. Uh, that Henry Clinton, uh, now in command of the war, and really facing what he feels is a ticking clock. Again, every second this revolution continues is a second too long in the minds of those back at the uh, court of St. James in England, is a second he's failing. So he wants to end this war fast. They all do, but we know the mistakes they make. For this reason, Henry Clinton believes the fastest way to do it is to draw George Washington and his Continental Army out of the shadows and make them fight one-on-one. Because Clinton knows he's got a huge superiority in manpower, uh, in sheer numbers, not only of people, uh, but of supplies, reinforcements, these sorts of things. Well, Washington knows this too. And that's the last thing he's going to do here in the year 1779. Again, when you fight a war like this, if you play by your opponent's rules, if you're the insurgent force or the guerrilla force, you're going to lose. Washington knows that you have to break a few rules if you want to be competitive in any way, shape, or form. If you go toe-to-toe with the British army, you're finished. That sets us through the beginning of 1778. Now, a few things have changed uh, in, in a positive way, I think, for the Patriots, for the rebels, uh, here in 1779. We know that in 1778, the Empire of France has officially joined the fray on behalf of the Americans, and again, I will stress, if the French do not support the Americans with their monies, with their supplies, with their armies, and I think most importantly, as we'll see, with their navies, the United States of America as we know it today does not exist. They are the major contributors from this moment on, but they aren't the only ones Someone new will enter the fray in June of 1779, when our story begins. And they are the less consequential, and growing less so, as time goes on, Empire of Spain. Now, rewind a bit. Why in the world would Spain want anything to do with this war? Well, it's the same reason that the French do. Now, going back through some old European bloodlines, the King of France is a member of the Bourbon family. Okay, big deal. Well, the King of Spain is a member of that extended family as well. They're both members in 1779 of what we call the Bourbon dynasty. And that does sort of link them up in the traditional, kind of almost medieval uh, inner workings of Europe. We're way past the medieval period, but that doesn't go away, especially in the minds of the elite. And that hasn't gone away by this point. Why Spain is so interested in joining this rebellion, not necessarily in open fighting, not yet, but there will be some of that, is for the same reason as I mentioned the French War. And the reason was revenge, amongst other things, for the Seven Years' War. Now, we study the Seven Years' War in three episodes in Season 1 of Wartime. I'd encourage you to go look it up. But here's the simple of it. Remember, in 1763, the British scored this tremendous victory, the greatest victory in their existence, conquering the French and stripping them of much of their colonial possessions, most importantly, North America. Well, towards the end of that war, the Spanish did get involved. They declared war against Britain, and they kind of jumped on board a sinking ship. The French were already well on their way to losing it. Basically, the Spanish jumped in just at enough time that they could lose their North American possessions as well. Most notably amongst them, the colony of Florida. Now, when the British took over Florida in 1763, they realized it's going to be very difficult to control. So they split it into two jurisdictions. One was called East Florida, with its capital being the old Spanish capital of St. Augustine, and the other would be called West Florida, and its capital would be a little place called Pensacola. Now, I'm going to try to keep that brief because in my new book, Hessians, the story, of the, at least a, a third of the story, really does take place in West Florida, and what a fascinating place it was. Pensacola, I never thought much of, spring break, whatever. Uh, but it's actually a very historic place, and if you know how to look when you're there, you can see a great deal of the geomorphology of the land, the lay of the land, if you would, is still very present. And if you understand what happens there later, which we'll talk about, Again, it's a very impressive and sometimes overwhelming place. But that's why Spain is back. Spain wants Florida back in North America. The reality is they can't do much with it. I mean, they are very much a dying empire. Their empire is based entirely on gold and silver, raw materials from the New World, and those run out. They're finite materials. Uh, But it had a lot to do with prestige, and it had a lot to do with opportunity. I mean, they had money. Uh, and the Americans were in no position to turn down any help from anyone. So now what I'm saying is by 1779, George Washington shadowing uh, Sir Henry Clinton in New York is feeling very bold. You know, maybe this strategy that Clinton's working, drawing Washington out, maybe that could have worked in any year prior to this. But with these new monies coming in, the ideology, again, of the Americans is intact. But now they have the money to, I guess you can say, walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Now, what we're going to talk about next, and this will get us into the events of 1779, uh, particularly in the summer of 1779, is going to be in the overall strategy uh, of Sir Henry Clinton's effort to eliminate Washington's army. And for him, he believes, and he's correct, that Washington's army relies wholly on its logistical capabilities, how it receives funds, because it has them, how it receives supplies, because they have them as well, and where their new recruits come from. Now, if you have a map of this, and again, I will make sure you have a copy at Brady Kreitzer on Twitter or search Wartime Podcast. I like to send out three or four maps and pictures that are helpful for understanding the episode on my Twitter feed. You'll need to really see this to get it. But again, if you look at Manhattan Island, where Clinton and the British are really sort of based out of for this entire war, On the western side of Manhattan Island is the river we talked about already called the Hudson River. Now, the value of the Hudson has always been that it flows uh, directly north. And when you take that, uh, it takes you to, after a brief portage on foot, Lake George, which connects directly with Lake Champlain, which connects uh, directly but shortly with the Richelieu River, which goes to the St. Lawrence River, which goes to Canada and all of Britain's. Uh, supplies and possessions in Quebec, Montreal. So that's a very important waterway. But by 1779, those rascally Americans have started to really make some headway on that regard, because they've uh, basically severed the Hudson River in half so that the British can never attack from the north and would be foolish to attack from the south. Well, how do they do it? Well, again, I mentioned uh, by 1779, the American Revolution is a very international affair. And many peoples are becoming involved, not just through monies, like the French and Spanish empires, but just people looking for a, a fight, effectively. Remember, in the 18th century, Europe is a continent in almost total rebellion uh, somewhere. You have rebellions in Russia, you have rebellions in what is today Italy, uh, you have small rebellions throughout what will be Germany, and so on. Well, a lot of these rebellions are led by very strong individuals. And when their rebellions fail, they're exiled from their homeland, and they're basically revolutionaries without a fight. Well, the American Revolution gives them that fight. And one of these men is a Polish fighter, uh, a Polish revolutionary named Tadeusz Kosciuszko. Try saying that ten times fast. But Kosciuszko comes uh, just at the right time for the Continental Army, because he's not a great soldier. Uh, He's not sort of one of these uh, men on horseback at the front of the line but he's a wonderful military engineer. He's a classically trained military engineer, and he can look at a span of land, and he can find the most defensible position, and he knows how to build the fortification that should go there. Uh, It's amazing what Kosciuszko will do for Washington's Rebellion A Pole, who speaks very little or no English at the time. He will be the one in 1777 uh, that allows Horatio Gates to make that brilliant stand at Saratoga, because he basically tells Gates, this is where your army should be. If you stand here and position your men there, there's no way the British can beat you. He was right. Well, in 1778, uh, playing a little bit of catch-up, he comes back again a year after Saratoga, and he finds for George Washington, a location on the Hudson River, where he believes uh, if you build a fortification there, uh, that the the British will have really no means of attacking you from the north. They could come from the south, but it would be foolhardy to do so. That location is along the western bank of the Hudson River, at a place where the river, which is relatively north and south, makes a very pronounced S curve. That place will become known as West Point. Now, the fort that he will build there is never called West Point. Uh, that's sort of Uh, a more recent development in American history. It's originally called Fort Clinton. But if you look at the map I'll tweet out, you can see a pronounced S-curve in the waterway itself. An S-curve means you have to slow down your process. If you have a big fleet like the British would have, you cannot navigate the Hudson easily once you get to that point. You have to slow down, you have to reposition yourselves. Uh, It's a really ideal place for the Americans to build a fort. It kind of juts out into the river. Uh, like an elbow, uh, in a way, if you look at it. So what Kosciusko builds is a fort. One of the other things he does, which is really mind-blowing, it's almost science fiction-y to me when I think about it, is that they bring out an enormous chain that's over, get this, I'm not making this up, an enormous chain that's over 600 yards long. Uh, Imagine uh, a chain that a giant would use, you know, sort of Uh, to wear around his neck, right? I mean, that's the kind of chain you're dealing with here. Almost cartoonishly large black chain. 600 yards across, they'll string it from one end of the Hudson to the other. Uh, and they will basically, um, block off the Hudson River. There's no way a British vessel, uh, could charge that chain and break it. Some people in the British Army and the British Navy think so, but the reality is it's probably not worth it. But that's what they do. They basically cut the river in half with an enormous, cartoonishly large chain, which, by the way, if you go to West Point today, uh, you can see part of it on display, and you'll see exactly what I mean. Uh, it's something that has no earthly business, uh, being in the hands of mere mortals, right? It's like the, uh, the chain of Zeus or something, but it's there, moving on. Um, this sets up the year 1779, because what that does for Clinton is basically allows him to the opportunity uh, to move north, to capture some American positions south of the chain, and then take full command of it. He basically says, if the Americans want to make the Hudson River into two, we're going to control what we can. Now, just south of that enormous, ridiculous chain uh, at West Point, Fort Clinton, in 1779, Uh, There's a point where, with the Hudson flowing just north to south again, just very straight, uh, two pieces of land, two elbows of land, you could say, jut out into the river, and they pinch it to be a relatively small width. Uh, One of these is called Stony Point on the western side, and one is called uh, Verplank's Point on the eastern side. It kind of makes that part of the river, and I'll send out a picture, I promise, look like an hourglass. Uh, We call that King's Ferry at the time. Kings Ferry, it's the easiest place where you can cross the Hudson River with uh, as little, I guess, water time as possible. Well, George Washington and his rebel army use Kings Ferry a great deal. Uh, you can still go there today and see that uh, there's not much there. There are some ruins of some of the fortifications, but uh, it's all very visible. And that is, uh, for all intents and purposes, Henry Clinton's target. There's a very small garrison of men on Stony Point, the western side of the King's Ferry, and almost nobody on Verplank's Point. And what he'll do uh, in the summer of 1779 is send a whole group of men up the river, and with only 40 American rebels at the location, relatively unaware of this happening, he'll capture Stony Point. So the British are controlling every major strategic piece of land they can, south of the large cartoonish chain. I really can't stop saying that. You have to see it. Look it up. Go online. Yeah, Again, I'll tweet out a picture for you. It's, it's something you have to see to understand what I mean, and you will get it as soon as you see it. But they want to control all of that, and they do. This leads us to the counterattack. This is effectively the Hudson River Campaign. We'll call it the Hudson River Campaign of 1779. Washington is not going to be drawn into a fight. He's not. But he knows that he has to control that piece of land, Stony Point, uh, the western edge of the King's Ferry. So he'll send a commander named Anthony Wayne, who, from this battle onwards, will be forever known as Mad Anthony Wayne. So why is that? Well, Stony Point, if you're on the river itself, it sits up a large hill. I mean, it's sort of almost a small mountain. This is not Mordor or something. This is not the Lord of the Rings, but um, it's it's high ground. That's why there's a fort there in the first place. And when the British are there, they're in a pretty commanding position. Anthony Wayne takes a, a several a hundred men uh, for the attack, and he knows that if he would attack Stony Point, uh, this sort of great high-water mark of the Hudson River campaign of 1779, in daylight, he'd be finished. The cannons are there, the fort's there, they'd be climbing into a wall of gunfire. So Anthony Wayne does something that's, well, mad. Uh, he attacks it at night. Now, they say that night of the attack, uh, it's so dark, uh, the men can't even see each other. So, Anthony Wayne makes his men put white pieces of paper and cloth on their hats, so he can see his own men uh, moving in the evening. This is a risky maneuver. It involves climbing through some pretty swampy area. It involves attacking a fort that uh, is very strongly defended. But on the late night of July 15th, going into the wee hours of the morning of July 16th, the American commander, Mad Anthony Wayne, charges up the hill at Stony Point in the middle of the night uh, with the uh, white flags on their hats, uh, and they do capture the location. It's an amazing feat for the Americans. It's something that George Washington will, will hang his hat on for quite a while. Anthony Wayne will secure himself in American history, with his victory. He'll do more in the future. He'll do a lot more in the future. Uh, But this is the first time that he really jumps onto the map in what we think of as a permanent way. By the end of the Battle of Stony Point, uh, Anthony Wayne will lose about 15 men, killed, 83 men wounded. Uh, But get this, they'll capture 546 of Henry Clinton's British. So again, all of that, uh, for still less than 100 casualties, the Battle of Stony Point is one of the uh, major American victories not only of the year seventeen seventy nine but of the war is any of it possible without all the supplies, the money, the manpower coming from overseas? You could argue yes, you could argue no, but the results are there. What this will do is effectively uh slow down Henry Clinton's move north up the Hudson River. It makes him sort of stop and reevaluate a bit. Does he really want to continue to do this because remember. Once you start to get into the fall months, and we're not close to it yet, your campaign season basically ends, and it will freeze until the next springtime. Henry Clinton really wanted to control that river. More importantly, something we really haven't talked much about, he wanted to get all the way to that big chain, the great chain, West Point, Fort Clinton. That was a base that Washington had been using, along with his bases in New Jersey. There was no luck with that. There was no avail to that. He couldn't do it. So West Point will survive. The Battle of Stony Point will secure an American victory. And what this does is really convince us Clinton and many of the administration of Great Britain that their current situation, sitting there uh, in Manhattan, waiting for Washington to come out and fight, really isn't tenable. You have to do something radically different. You have to do something drastic. You have to reevaluate the war. Remember, we said early on. One of the issues the British have all throughout the war is that from the beginning to the end, they never have a clear, cohesive, uh, steady, consistent strategy for winning it. We talked earlier about William Howell's plans in 76. We talked about Burgoyne's great invasion from the north in 77. Uh, And now we're talking about Henry Clinton trying to uh, basically make a run at the great giant chain uh, in West Point here in 79. None of these are working. None of them are working. The evidence is there. Henry Clinton is no dummy. He'll reevaluate this. Stony Point, an American victory, really helps him to do so. With that, we're going to leave uh, what I'll call the traditional American Revolution for today's episode, which is the British versus the Americans, but fear not. If you ask me, we're getting into now the much more interesting part of it. And it comes down to what I like to call the American Revolution at home. The real revolution. This is the revolution the way that I see it. In many ways, I like to talk about the American Revolution as uh, an upending of a very clear and a very old order. In many ways, it's catastrophic. Not catastrophic because of the outcome. I don't plan on running for Congress anytime soon, but someone could play that or something. Uh, the American Revolution's catastrophic. Uh no. Uh, It's catastrophic in how it destroys communities. And this is an area that we're learning more and more about every day. In my new book, Hessians, which will be released in May, by the way, available on pre-order, Amazon.com right now, Hessians. You can find it there. Uh, It really shows how the, the very fabric of American life is pulled apart. It's destroyed. Now, we talked about this earlier in the season, but it's worth mentioning. For me, the American Revolution is a nasty war. It's a political war. Uh, it's what we call a partisan war. Think about your political stance. Maybe if you're American, uh, you're a Democrat. Maybe you're a Republican. If you're anywhere else in the world, maybe you're a leftist. Maybe you're uh, on the right. Nothing gets your blood up like arguing with the other side. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. But in America, in the 18th century, the major political issue is revolution, is separation. And what occurs when that happens is uh, the most heated political debate you ever have now becomes violent. Neighbors will not only fight neighbors with their fists, but in some cases, neighbors will kill neighbors uh, with muskets or pickaxes or whatever farming equipment they have on hand. You'll see people assigning uh, relevance to themselves and therefore trying to sort of institutionalize themselves, giving themselves authority that have none. You might have a group of people from one town who are very angry, so they call themselves the county militia. They give themselves a commander, they give themselves commissions, none of which they have any real authority to do, and they come knocking on your door. They'll say to you, do you support King George, or do you support George Washington, the revolution? And you might not know what side they're on. They could be American rebels, American patriots. They could be American loyalists, American Tories, at the time they are called. You don't know. The fact is, you're just a farmer, you're just a shopkeeper, you're a mother or a father, just trying to live your life. But you know if you answer the wrong way, I support the king or I support the rebellion, you'll probably end up in some sort of jail, not a real jail, probably something makeshift, but you end up there. And, even worse than that, you could possibly be executed in a summary fashion. That happens. Not a lot, but it did happen. This is what happens all across the colonies of North America during the American Revolution. And when you read the journals of these people, when you read how they feel, the fear that lives inside of them, the uncertainty, you begin to get a sense of how desperate they were. How terrible this whole thing was. For me, the American Revolution is a very emotional study. Now, I'm not blubbering here, but when you really look at the people who are affected, when you take away this paradigm of red coats versus blue coats, or the big bad empire versus, uh, you know, the Rocky Balboa revolutionaries, and you see the real effect it has on the ground it does have an effect on you. I mean, there's no sharp edges in history. It's not black and white. It's not A or B. There's always blurred lines. There's a gray area. And that's where, as historians, we live. The American Revolution does not get that treatment enough. It just doesn't. So if you're listening to this, uh, I would say join the fight. Uh, But this is what I want to talk to you about for the rest of the episode. How this develops. And a big part of that, a huge part of that, is going to be the Native Americans fighting here in North America. Let's review. The dominant Indian force of the American Northeast has been for a very long time, certainly the length of anything we've talked about here, the Iroquois Confederacy. The Iroquois Confederacy, there's a whole episode on them in season one of Wartime, stretches in an arc. Moving from the west with the Seneca uh, to the far east with the Mohawk. In between, you have the Cayuga, the Onondaga, uh, the Oneida, the Tuscarora, uh, and the Mohawk. That's your six nations of the Iroquois. Traditionally, going back to the Seven Years' War and before that, the Iroquois were British allies. The alternative was the French. And when this revolution starts, they're a little perplexed by it early on. Because they kind of thought that you were all British. Well, some of us are British, and now some of us want to be something different. What side do you take? Well, the Iroquois honor their treaties. They stay neutral early on, maybe out of confusion, maybe out of uh, a lack of a real policy, Confederacy-wide. But eventually they will, at least four of the six, two-thirds of them, side with the British as their original uh, agreement said. The groups that will side with them are the Seneca, the Cayuga, the Mohawk, and the Onondaga. But there are still two other nations in the Iroquois Confederation. Think of them like states compared to the United States. That's a good way to view them. In fact, Thomas Jefferson really used them as an example when he was sort of visualizing the new United States as it were. But they are the... uh Oneida, uh, and the Tuscarora. The Tuscarora kind of go where the Oneida go, but they had a great deal of interaction with an American missionary named Samuel Kirkland, and over time they grew very close with the Americans. When the Iroquois finally do take sides in 1777, at that point, two of the six nations decide not to. So again, it's a fascinating idea. But the American Revolution, seemingly this war between Britain and the Americans, if you want to take it that simplistic route, becomes a civil war for the oldest Native American empire on the continent. I mean, you can't make that up. That's microscopic level study that you almost never hear about. But that takes center stage in this part of the episode. What occurs is this. The British army will never march with the Iroquois in a traditional way. The Iroquois aren't best used that way. The Iroquois will fight the way they've always fought. They fight in small bands, not as an army, but a collection of individual warriors. They attack swiftly and painfully. They instill fear in their enemies. They're a political weapon as well as a psychological weapon. Again, in the first season we talked a lot about Indian warfare. I'd encourage you to listen to that. And the British can't wait to use them against the Americans. Because remember, it's a political war. And any political leverage that you'll have goes a long way. Now, from the earliest European experience here in North America, going back to, say, the 16th century, all the way to the Revolution, if there's one thing Europeans aren't very good at, it's defeating Indians. They just aren't. The Indian fighting style is the perfect foil to the rigid, traditional, conservative European fighting style. And the British are very happy to use that against the Americans. The fact is, the Americans are equally happy to use it against the British. The native peoples are are, uh, a dangerous, yet essential ally of the 18th century. Well, the way they use the Iroquois in the war against the Americans, again, it's not on the battlefield, but it's in raids. So let me set this sort of stanza up for you. The base of the American Revolution in the West is at what is today Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, my hometown, at Fort Pitt. Massive fortification taken over by the Patriots years earlier. The counterpoint to that sits just due north uh, in what is today Youngstown, New York, just outside of Niagara Falls, New York, at a place uh, called Fort Niagara. It was built by the French before the Seven Years' War. It's a spectacular fort. It's right on Lake Ontario. Uh, It's almost like a medieval castle in a way. Very French, but now British. That's the British base of operations in the West as far as we're concerned for this episode. So Fort Pitt will have operations launched by Patriot Rangers, we'll say, sort of unofficial uh, militia who kind of do their own thing. Uh, And Fort Niagara will be the base of uh, Loyalist or Tory Rangers. Again, these aren't British soldiers. These are Americans and Canadians who like being British, Remember, the British Empire is safe, it's secure, it's the established order of the world. Separating from them is a very scary thing, because there's no guarantee you'll be successful. There's no guarantee you'll even win the war. And if you don't, you're a traitor to the empire that your father was a part of, and your grandfather was a part of, and your great-grandfather was a part of. What I'm saying is go easy on the loyalists, because it's much more difficult than we think. And what made a loyalist or a patriot... Again, had a lot more to do with whatever army was knocking on your door than what your real political leanings were. But the loyalist rangers, most notably a man named John Butler, uh, born in New York, will be a very effective weapon for the British cause. John Butler and the Iroquois warrior that goes by Joseph Brant and his warriors, really terrorized the state of New York, even moving into Pennsylvania. It would not be uncommon for them to, as the rebels would say, the patriots would say, descend upon a village, destroy it all, kill men, women, and children. I mean, that happened. There were atrocities on both sides. But if you're George Washington and you're finally finding success, the one thing that will drive you mad before anything else is the fact that no matter how you square off with the British, you've taken down William Howe. You're taking down Sir Henry Clinton. Yet you still have this issue, this nagging issue, that the frontiers are places of terror and violence and bloodshed because you have these joint loyalist Indian raiding parties moving throughout, again, the real breadbasket of Europe Revolution, Pennsylvania, New York, upstate New York. I mean, that's troublesome for George Washington because he's fought Indians his whole life. He's never been terribly successful. In fact, he's never been successful. But he understands their style of war. And he understands that you won't beat them in a traditional way. So in 1779, George Washington embarks on what I think is his most brutally effective and complete victory of the entire war. I mean, when it comes to campaigns and you look at what the objectives are of the respective leaders and what they actually accomplish, very little campaigns in American history, really in European history, can hold a candle to what George Washington's going to do in 1779 to the Iroquois Confederacy. He understands how they operate. Again, they live in a wide swath across the state of New York. Syracuse, New York is a good center, fulcrum, so to speak, of their Confederacy. I mean, it is where they meet, uh, but it's the middle way point. If you go across the state of New York, you're dealing with the Finger Lakes region, I-90. That's where a lot of this happens. But Washington understands the Indian way of life. And he understands that you can't just beat them on the battlefield. That's not going to be effective, especially not for the Americans. You have to fight them in a more brutal fashion. So he assigns three officers with a very dark task. I think that's a good way to talk about it. Uh, And it's a task that will involve alienating and maybe killing families, women, children, non-combatants. But Washington understands if you want these Iroquois warriors to be uh, nullified, to be negated in the war, you want that to happen as soon as possible. It's the only way to do it. What he's going to initiate in 1779 is the Sullivan-Clinton campaign, maybe better known as the Sullivan-Clinton-Broadhead campaign. But what it is is a declaration of total war on the Iroquois Confederacy. Now, again, I don't like to read to you much. It's boring. But I think hearing Washington's own words here is going to be very important, because I promise you, unless you're familiar with this campaign, this is a side of George Washington you've never really seen before. Uh, Maybe you could chalk it up to the horrors of war. But there's no doubt what he wants to do and what he does do. So here's a letter written by George Washington, May 31st of 1779, how to deal with the Iroquois threat. He writes it to General John Sullivan the general he puts in charge of executing this expedition. He says, quote, in the letter, the expedition you are appointed to command is to be directed against the hostile tribes of the six nations of Indians with their associated adherents. Remember, two of the six Iroquois nations are siding with the uh, the patriots, which is why he says only the hostile tribes. He continues, the immediate ob- objects are the total destruction and devastation of their settlements, and the capture of as many prisoners of every age and sex as possible. It will be essential to ruin their crops, now in the ground, and prevent their planting more. He continues, I would recommend that some post in the center of the Indian country should be occupied with all expedition, with a sufficient quantity of provisions whence parties should be detached to lay waste to all the settlements around with instructions to do it in the most effectual manner, that the country may not be merely overrun, but destroyed. He finally ends George Washington with this paragraph, But you will not by any means listen to any overture of peace before the total ruinment of the settlements is effected. Our future security will be in their inability to injure us, and in the terror with which the severity of the chastisement they receive will inspire them. What's George Washington saying here? He wants total war on the Iroquois world. He wants Clinton, Sullivan in the uh, east, and Daniel Broadhead out of Fort Pitt in the west to sweep through the Iroquois world. If you find a village, burn it. If you see a family, take them prisoner. Don't only destroy the crops they've already planted, but destroy the land so much that they can never plant there again. What he's talking about is the ruination of an empire, the Iroquois empire. It's already teetering. It's been teetering for some time. He wants it wiped off the face of the earth. It's frightening to think of George Washington like that. But war is hell. I mean, we use that for a lot of different excuses, right? This is one, maybe we can do it again. Do you give him a pass? Do you not? I don't know. But out of Pennsylvania, visualize this. There's a city in the east called Easton. That's easy enough. And a city in the west at about the same line of latitude called Pittsburgh, Fort Pitt. John Sullivan will lead a group of men out of Easton northward into upstate New York. Daniel Broadhead will lead a group of men out of Pittsburgh northward toward New York as well. Their mission is destroy everything. And that's what they do. As they march, they burn it all. The homes, the villages, the crops. Remember, most of the warriors, the, the fathers, are out fighting with the British. They're not there to protect their families. These are just civilians left behind. Sullivan, Clinton, and Broadhead destroyed all. So going back to the very first season of wartime, this great Iroquois empire, this Native American superpower, is left in ruins. If you travel across I-90 in New York, from Buffalo all the way to Albany, You can follow the path of destruction, and you know it's effective because the Iroquois really aren't there anymore, not like they were before. I'm not thumping my chest about this. I'm not saying this was some great, wonderful thing. It was a very destructive thing. As historians, it's not our job to say yes or no, good or bad. We have to accept that it happened and try and make some sense of it. But anytime you have the wanton destruction of civilians and property, it's something we should, I think, take a step back from. But this might be, just from a strictly military perspective, George Washington's most effective campaign of the entire war. In fact, I'll say it was. I will. Because it had a very clear plan, devastation, terror, fear, the inability to execute your way of life, and it was done with brutal fashion. There's no doubt. Now, at the end of this campaign, Broadhead's forces in the west and Sullivan and Clinton's forces in the east were to meet up and attack Fort Niagara uh, in Youngstown, what is today Youngstown, New York, just north of Niagara Falls. That was the base of Loyalist Indian operation. They were to besiege the post, destroy it, uh, and move on. But the issue was, as the campaign continued... The year was getting late. It was getting to be fall. The harvests were gone. And they knew that their mission was utterly and totally completed. Plus, they had to get back before winter. So those two forces never joined together to attack Fort Niagara. Which is fortunate for us because, again, it is a beautiful place. It sits in the middle of a park, as an aside. Uh, near baseball fields and a playground. Then there's this, just again, massive uh, sort of citadel castle along Lake Ontario. It's by far my favorite French fort still standing. That's another story. I would go visit it. If you're in uh, Niagara Falls on the American side, very easy ride up the highway. But this is what happens. Now, even though the Americans, Sullivan, Clinton, and Broadhead, didn't actually physically attack Fort Niagara, the base of the revolution in the West for the British, They were highly effective in taking it out of commission anyway, so how? Well, when all the Iroquois warriors came home, as winter fell, and they saw their homes gone, their crops gone, their families faced with starvation, thousands of Iroquois directed their attention to Fort Niagara. With blankets, with bags, with whatever supplies they had left that wasn't destroyed, they were knocking on the gates of Fort Niagara, and the British did let them in. And that basically took the post out of commission. It couldn't be used effectively as a military post anymore. It was flooded with refugees. Refugees of war. Political refugees. I'm not trying to say that uh, this ended the partisan nature of the war. It doesn't. It's just going to move, like we'll see, in 1780. But it reveals the real horror of the war. Not just because George Washington ordered this, he's acting as a general, that's fine. But it shows the average people who aren't wearing uniforms, but who are still largely fighting this war. Remember, the American Revolution is a civil war on many levels. It's a war that totally upends the power in the world as we know it. It replaces it with what? A power vacuum. Chaos. But the American Revolution in 1779, uh, really, really interesting... Uh, and a lot to chew on, and a lot we quite frankly haven't dealt with. For a good, by the way, uh, study of that campaign, uh, there's a book that came out by Westholm Publishing called The Year of the Hangman, written by Glenn F. Williams. Uh, the Year of the Hangman was 1777, but we can forgive Mr. Williams. It's a very cool name. But it really is an in depth study of everything we've talked about in way, way more detail. And believe me, In a study like that, the details are everything. So hopefully you're seeing by now, 1779, the war is changing. It was a very international affair. Now, with a lot of troop movements, a lot of new people involved, a lot of British forces being moved to the Caribbean and the South, who's fighting the war is changing, as well as where it's fighting. Hopefully by now you see the American Revolution a little bit more the way I see it. Much more difficult than anything we've thought before. On the next episode, we move south, the year 1780. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.